Hello, this is Slow Phone Podcast, a podcast about the healthy use of technologies. Senhoras e senhores, a seguir serão discutidos os movimentos de tecnologia segura na América do Norte. Esta mesa será conduzida em inglês e, posteriormente, a gravação será disponibilizada com legendas. Tem a palavra a integrante da campanha, Slowfone, Aline Gonçalves, para dar as boas-vindas aos participantes da mesa. Muito obrigada, Tiago. Gostaria de agradecer a todos que nos assistem, a todos os participantes deste evento e a toda a comissão organizadora que está ajudando a tornar este encontro possível. A mesa a seguir ela será conduzida em inglês por Cecília Dulcet, integrante da Massachusetts for Safe Technology. Cecília Dulcet ajudou o primeiro distrito escolar público dos Estados Unidos a adotar as melhores práticas para os dispositivos móveis e também trabalhou com sua biblioteca pública para disponibilizar equipamentos de medição de radiação à comunidade e também hospedar uma série de filmes sobre radiação eletromagnética e saúde. Com vocês, então... Oh, thank you so much, Alina. It's such a privilege to be with you today. And we are so excited to do this panel with you. Um, our guests with us today will be Frank Clegg, Dr. Kent Chamberlain, Theodora Scarato, and Patty Wood. And we will give fuller introductions as we bring each speaker up to present their slides with you and talk about the specialties that they are doing in their country or in their state. So once again, welcome everybody and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to begin with a set of slides to explain what we've been doing here in Massachusetts. And so I will tab over to that. Can everybody see those slides now? Uh, can somebody give me a verbal confirmation that you can see my slide? Yes, you see, we can okay, see. Okay, thank you. So our panel this afternoon will be the movements of safe technology in North America. And uh, I have been fortunate to be connected with many of these wonderful experts and have co-founded a nonprofit called Wireless Education, where we have little mini courses where folks can learn about this issue for schools and families and for the corporate workplace in about a half an hour online. I am also the director of Massachusetts for Safe Technology, where citizens gather once a month to share ideas and inspire one another and strategize on how we can make our communities safer. And I was very fortunate to co-chair the technology panel at the Health in Buildings Roundtable Conference down at the National Institutes of Health. And Theodora and Frank both joined us on that panel as well. The reason why I highlight this one especially is that our talks were very short. They're under 10 minutes each. And so for somebody who's new to this conversation, these are very short and credible videos that can be shared. And I will put my um, presentation in with our friends at Slow Phone and see if they can post it after the conference today. I was also honored to be a speaker at the Electromagnetic Fields Medicine, Medical Conference in January, where we gave information about what's happening at the state and local level in the United States. So 
that's a little bit about my background. And what I'd like to talk about in the next 15 minutes or so is the legal fine print that comes with our devices, what it looks like to measure radio frequency radiation, and then inroads that we're making here in Massachusetts, and perhaps most importantly, a bevy of solutions that folks can start using in their own communities to get to safe technology. And then, of course, there's always bumps in the road. So we'd like to share some lessons learned in hopes that it might help you to get to safe technology faster. So for anybody who uses an iPhone, I would welcome you to take that out right now and go into settings. And um, with great thanks to the Environmental Health Trust and Theodora, there's a website out there that if you don't have an iPhone, you can go out and look to see what some of the other fine print says. But from settings in an iPhone, scroll down just a little ways and hit general. On an old phone, you would hit about at the top. But for most people, they've upgraded. So from general, scroll all the way down to the bottom to legal and regulatory. And then when you hit that, it brings up a little list and five or six items down, you'll see RF exposure. That legal fine print has been in there all along and it tells us a couple of really important things. One, this device was tested at a distance away from the body, so don't use it on your body or you may exceed the government regulations for radiation, which as I believe you've been learning from other scientists and experts, we're never biologically safety tested. It also tells us to use a hands-free option because by simply holding that device in active mode, the way it's given to us, you're being exposed to radiation from five or six separate antennas that are constantly pulsing this radiation to make or maintain a handshake with the nearest cell tower or router. So this is a good way to alert others who might be skeptical it even says it right in their own device to not use this on the body. And then because this is an invisible toxin, it can be very hard for people to get their minds around this. So what I'd like to do is to give a quick demonstration. Um, in my home, we have hardwired all of our technology. So we don't have a lot of radiation except for what may be coming in from our neighbors or from the utility smart meters that are on the other side of our home. And so when I turn on this device, you'll see that it's flashing in the green, which is a pretty good goal to get to. See if you can get your radiation levels down to the green. But what I also wanna show is what happens when we turn on something like a smartphone. And as a rule, I keep my cell phone in airplane mode and I only take it out to use in emergencies. So right now, this cell phone is transmitting at 19,600 microwatts per, per meter squared. And in the scientific literature, they want us to be at 0 0.1 microwatts per meter squared. So these devices are not safe. And being able to measure it and show it to people is one of the best ways to help make this invisible toxin real. So when I first learned about this, I thought, well, if there are measurement devices, let's get one for our public schools, let's get one for our library so everyone can just go gather the data 
and see what their exposures are. So it took me three tries and three grant cycles, but I eventually educated my town enough that they took some money from a grant program we have here and allowed me to purchase one meter to give to our public library. And it's been wonderful because people have come back to me and said, that was wonderful. And now we've donated one to our library too. So that might be something every community could do. We also hosted a documentary film and discussion series on electromagnetic radiation and health. And again, that's something that any library could do. So in the schools, um, I was just a parent who had volunteered my time when we heard about the 21st century classroom to start doing fundraising to be able to afford the iPads and the Chromebooks and all the wireless infrastructure because our school budgets had been cut to the bone and we didn't have that kind of money. So after working with our schools, we became the first in the United States to have a little sign like this with best practices for mobile devices, to turn them off when not in use, only use it when needed, and always put the device on a solid surface away from the body because even the legal fine print shows us that much. Um, and then we had an expert panel in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts that the Theodora and Frank and Dr. Martha Herbert from the Massachusetts um, uh, Hospital that has an autism lab that she founded. She spoke about autism and the correlation she sees between radio frequency radiation exposure and the symptoms in her patients. We also had Dr. Ronald Melnick, who was the senior toxicologist who designed the US National Toxicology Program study that concluded clear evidence that this radiation causes cancer and DNA damage. So these are great resources to use in your own community to help educate. We should also know that the New York Times, which is a leading publication in the United States, did a series of articles to show that the people who are developing this technology out in Silicon Valley, the executives are banning screens from their children. They're sending their children to schools with no technology and they're making their nannies sign contracts that there will be no screens around their children. And then Dr. Tony Stein worked with the United States Collaborative for High Performance Schools. And this is an organization that certifies schools and um, allows them to get this certification if they have green schools. So being mindful of the energy, being mindful of clean environments, and now there is a chapter with them for low EMF best practices. Now at the state level, many of our towns, because citizens are speaking up and educating their towns, they're taking action. The city of Boston filed a formal comment with the Federal Communications Commission saying, we believe the public, we don't think those radiation exposure limits are safe for our citizens. They also joined with towns across the United States and sued the FCC. Unfortunately, they didn't win, but it, again, everything is building blocks to raise awareness. And then in Burlington, Massachusetts, there was a small cell policy that was developed and they pulled together a town board with people from their zoning, their planning, their board of health, their select board. And they came up with this policy that they worked on for over a year. And it said things like, you can't block the sidewalk with these small cells and the big power packs that come with them. Um, and anything that you put in has to blend in with the environment. 
And then we are going to require you to come back every year and recertify that that equipment is still viable. And the vendor will have to pay the town a fee to hire an independent consultant to do that annual recertification. And the night that they ratified that policy, the Verizon lawyer was there and said, well, we don't wanna set precedent for an annual recertification or a fee because they plan to install millions of these all over our country as other telecoms are doing around the world. So with great thanks to Patty and Doug Wood at Grassroots Environmental, um, they went ahead and took those best practices and turned them into a template that any town can begin using and talking with the town attorneys and the town leaders about. And then just this month, at the beginning of the month, there's a town in Massachusetts called Pittsfield where a cell tower was turned on the first week of the pandemic and children and adults begin getting very ill immediately. So we're so grateful that after many, many hours of working with this Board of Health, they realized there's nobody coming to help them. So they better start learning about this issue at the local level. And they finally allowed a panel of experts, including Dr. Paul Haru, Magda Havis, Dr. Magda Havis, Sheena Symington, Dr. David Carpenter, and Theodora joined us on that call, as did others from around the United States. So all these links will bring you to all of these programs that can be emulated elsewhere. At the state agency level, you may know that California had written a cell phone fact sheet back in 2009 that was never released. The industry had heavy influence and it took a lawsuit by Dr. Joel Moskowitz at the University of California at Berkeley to get that released. And so we shared that with our Department of Public Health in Massachusetts. And I had worked with them back in 2016 to create an EMF fact sheet. And I was told it would be out in three months. Well, here we are five years later and it's never been released to the public. We got the Boston Globe, which is our main newspaper in Massachusetts. They finally did an article and the Department of Health said they would have those fact sheets out within six months. But instead of giving the real facts, they actually put up a page on the state's radiation control website that basically says, ah, there's nothing to be concerned about here. And then they point at our corrupted federal agencies that are captured by industry. And so we took it a step further. The Department of Public Health reports into the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. And we met with the Secretary's office there in what I thought was a really good meeting, but here it's now been two years and they've done nothing to protect the public. Other agencies that we've been educating are the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, and they have listened, but they say they're waiting for higher authorities to tell them what to do. We've also worked with our Department of Public Utilities regarding the toxic utility smart meters that are being installed on people's homes. And now they're trying to use those smart meters to get the electric vehicles to market, which is a really bad idea to be pulsating that radiation from these smart meters all along. And then here at the state level, we have worked with our legislators and we have 11 bills that are sponsored by different senators and state representatives. I'll speak briefly about these three because they've been around for several sessions. Senator Julian Sears bill, Senate 186, would form a commission to bring the right minds together at the state level 
investigate wireless, and then decide what to do. Senator Michael Moore's bill would give the public the right to say no thank you to those utility smart meters for gas, for water, for electric, and for solar that pulse this radiation into our homes 24-7. And then Representative Carolyn Dykma has a bill, House 115, to start addressing wireless technology in school and get us to safe technology. And at the personal level, the solutions that we can look to are control what we can control. And I know that Sheena Symington and Magda Havas and Libby Kelly spoke about some of these, so I won't spend too much time. But for every antenna you have in your device, you can control that. Go into airplane mode and that shuts off a bunch of them, but look for the cell antenna, the data, the Wi-Fi, the Bluetooth, the hotspot and the locator. And just as we ultimately did with secondhand smoke, we need to become aware of secondhand radiation and make sure that when we choose to turn these antennas on, we're mindful that we're not exposing a pregnant woman or a baby or a child or an elderly person or somebody with an existing health condition because their immune systems are already not well equipped to deal with this. So it's not rocket science. This is what safe technology looks like. The router in your home has ethernet ports in the back. You just get a big shielded ethernet cable and shielded just means it's got a foil liner in there that keeps the electric and magnetic fields from going out into the room. That's another form of man-made dirty electricity or, or electromagnetic field. If you have more than one device, this is, think of this as an extension cord for electronics and you can just plug in multiple devices to this as well as to the cord that goes to your router. And then there are little adapters you can get for, for, for your cell phones, and there are little adapters you can get for your laptops and your tablets, and they're not terribly expensive. Um, and then once you plug these cords back in, just go into the settings and turn off all the antennas. At home, I still use a corded landline, and you can just forward cell phones to a landline if you still have landlines in your area. So that's what we should strive for in our own homes to create safety and especially a, a safe sleeping sanctuary. In the professional arena, we have wonderful resources to share with our medical professionals. Our first responders, our firefighters all need to be trained. And the EMF Medical Conference has videos available that the public can access too in addition to the healthcare providers who can get continuing medical education credits. Dr. Cindy Russell and others have established Physicians for Safe Technology, so you can show your doctors and your nurses and your therapists that yes, these doctors do know what this is and you can get credible information there. Uh, we have information for engineers, for physicists, for technologists, for architects. Frank Clegg and others collaborated and wrote a wonderful paper to help our professionals understand this issue, and that can be found here as well. And then there's a whole profession dedicated to creating safe spaces, and those are our building biologists and our EMF consultants, and those can be consulted to come into your home or your office or your school to help you if you're not a do-it-yourself kind of person. At the town level for municipal solutions, it's critically important to educate our town leaders enough so that they will investigate. So there are resources for municipal leaders here. 
Uh, I'm a technical and professional writer, and I got way in over my head and couldn't remember where I found important resources to share. So I just started listing them out in my research repository called Understanding EMFs. Anybody is welcome to go there and use that as a launch point for these conversations. And I link to all the incredible resources that Patty and Frank and uh, Kent and Theodora all have. So wherever you want to use as your entry point, just take it away. But when we talk to our towns, it's really important to help them to differentiate between what the industry's priorities are versus what the public's priorities should be. Dr. Ken Sheckley with Camilla Reese and others created this wonderful roadmap for our towns called Reinventing Wires, the Future of Landlines and Networks. They highlight at least a dozen reasons why our towns should not allow any more wireless and instead go with hardwired fiber optics or high-speed cable or copper right to the premises and then just simply hook up like we showed with ethernet cables and adapters inside. And as other speakers in this symposium have suggested, measuring is really the only way to know if you've gotten all the exposures under control. And don't measure against the government guidelines, but instead measure against what the science shows us for biological effects. And Safe Living Technologies in Canada has a wonderful one-page resource because these um, signals are measured in many different units of measurement. And he's got a wonderful one page there to show the different measures. And then where there's no concern, slight concern, severe concern, and then extreme concern. So all those measurements are available in a one page sheet. And then here in the United States, our government centers for disease control already has a principle called ALARA, and that stands for as low as reasonably achievable. And that should be our goal with not only the ionizing radiation like x-rays in the sun, but now for all of this non-ionizing radiation that we're getting from wireless, we need to get to as low as reasonably achievable. And then there are all sorts of other tools to take to our towns, to our families, to our work colleagues. And Patty will talk us through her Tech Safe Schools program. This little book called Wireless Wise Kids is just a simple paperback that gives great suggestions for children and adults. And then we have these courses with wireless education. This award-winning film, Generation Zapped, has been translated into several languages. And in 74 minutes, you'll hear in a very lovely way wonderful scientists, wonderful doctors and public people who are telling us about this issue. We've even had some public broadcasting episodes thanks to Bert Wolf and Camilla Reese and Dr. Erica Mallory Blythe and others. So tons of resources to help us learn. Um, oh, this is a photo of some of us when we were down at the National Institutes of Health and Michelle Cooley was wonderful to host us there that day. But the lessons that I've learned on this journey is don't go it alone. Unfortunately, most public servants are not empowered to do the right thing as soon as the issue is raised. And I raised my hand and thought when I tell them that this is harming the children, they would have fixed it right away. But unfortunately, where I am, that's not how our system works. One voice can very easily be swept under the rug. So my advice is to get everybody around you educated using the tools we've reviewed 
educate the parents, the grandparents, because they have time and they will care passionately about this. So educate your loved ones and your healthcare teams first. If you can get a, a scientist or a doctor to come with you when you talk to the towns, that's very strong too. So then meet with the decision makers as a group and always show this invisible toxin. Pool your money together or, in, or invest yourself in one of these radiation detection meters because once they see those readings, it's a huge eye-opener. And then it's critically important for us to understand where they're coming from. What is their system? What are their constraints? And how can we help them to remove the barriers to be successful in the systems through which they have to affect change? And at every turn when I was first started with this, I thought I would raise my hand and say, we have a problem. And then these people in authority would just take the ball and run with it and fix it. But time after time after time, I have found that this is not the way that this happens. So don't expect somebody else to fix this for you. It's up to us as the citizens to keep this moving at every step. Be polite, be diplomatic, but be persistent. And together, let's see what we can do to continue to work toward hardwire solutions. So thank you for letting me speak for a few minutes today. You can find me at Massachusetts for Safe Technology, or you can email me at ma, the number four, safetech at gmail.com. So I will exit out of my screen share here and see if I can come back with you. Um, and so now it is my great privilege to introduce you to Frank Clegg. And for those of you who joined us for the first opening session of this symposium, uh, you will recognize Frank Clegg as the keynote speaker. He is the former president of Microsoft Canada, and he is currently the CEO and chairman of Canadians for Safe Technology. He also co-chairs the Business Advisory Group for the Environmental Health Trust. And today he's joining us to share with us the inroads that he and his colleagues are making up in Canada. So Frank, thank you so much for joining us and we'll let you take it from here. Thank you, Cece. And I would like to thank the organizers of the um, uh, electromagnetic protect protection meeting. Can you, can everyone see my slides? Yes. Great, terrific. So um, Cece, um, Cece commented, I have uh, spent my entire career in the technology sector. The most recent position I held was as president of Microsoft Canada when I retired. Um, and as you can imagine, I've seen the tremendous benefits that technology can provide, but I've also seen the potential harm if technology is not implemented in a, in a correct manner. And as I said in my introductory and the keynote address that I had the opportunity and the pleasure to meet with experts from around the world. Some of them are speakers on the panel today. Some of them are speakers in the, in the, in the general uh, electromagnetic protection conference. And so I don't make the statement lightly, and I am very concerned. I'll talk about uh, my industry's behavior, but what, what um, my conclusion back in 2012 actually led me to help co-found uh, Canadians for Safe Technology. And our focus is really, uh, it's a nonprofit, completely 100% nonprofit organization, 100% volunteer-based, so nobody's paying any salaries or, or, or benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a national coalition of parents, citizens, and experts and advisors actually from, from around the world. And our mission is really to educate and inform Canadians about the potential dangers of exposure to radiation from wireless technology, 
and also to help educate them on how to use uh, the technology safely. And CC, I thought your, your slides were uh, excellent in terms of how to use the technology. We're not saying don't use the technology, we're saying use it safely. In addition, C4ST's mission is to work with all levels of government in Canada to create healthier communities for children and families from coast to coast to coast. As CC mentioned, I had the, uh, the pleasure to, uh, to work with Theodora Endeavor and the other members of the Environmental Health Trust. And one of the reasons that I, I joined Environmental Health Trust is, it, to my knowledge, it's one of the very few, if the only organization that does both the advocacy and education work, but also gets involved with uh, carrying on and funding research about the environmental health hazards to, our, to ourselves and our, and our planet. I want to talk a little bit about the industry right now, and I think there's some things that our industry is doing that you have to give them credit for. One of the things that I'm, and I've been on a lot of speakers, been invited to a lot of panels, a lot of discussions, and whenever I hear government employees or government representatives or even people representing um, regular industries, the, my industry has done a very good job of connecting internet solutions and the benefits with wireless devices. And, and I think it's very important right up front, we make that distinction. I know other people on the conference have, have made that distinction that you can have 100% access to the internet and, and do it in a wired, safe environment. Um, if asked if the industry is safe, our uh, technology is safe, my industry say, we will meet federal guidelines. I thought, um, Cece, in, in terms of uh, pointing out that there are warnings inside either inside the, the manual or the device itself for every device that uses wireless technology there is an associated warning with it there was a study done here in canada where 80 percent of the canadians said they were not aware that that message even existed and about two-thirds of them admitted to either holding the phone to their head or to, against their body which of course breaks the guidelines. So we can have this debate about whether the guidelines are appropriate or strong enough, but to, to the fact that people aren't even aware that you break these guidelines that are out of date, in my opinion, by just putting the phone to your head or setting the laptop on your lap, uh, people aren't even aware of that. My industry also has this unbelievable advantage and, and benefit that we're able to introduce the new technology at an incredibly fast and increasing uh, pace. And then we monitor for damage and the onus is on others to prove that there is damage. And, you know, unlike the pharmaceutical industry or the chemical industry or the automotive industry, who are all held accountable to prove their technology or their device or their new cars or their new um, uh, prescriptions or the new chemicals, they, the onus is on them to prove that they're safe before they're allowed to ship them to the marketplace. So I think we have this backwards where the technology and the communications industry are allowed to bring out 5G, 5G devices uh, and not be accountable to prove that they are in fact safe. Um, I mentioned at the beginning, and I'll say this again, just to reinforce that a significant amount of the benefits associated with 5G can be gained from wired, uh, from wired solutions. Um, I think it's also important to note that whether it's in the telecommunications sector or the technology sector, there's a huge dependence on increasing profits, which of course the executives who run and the boards who, who, who oversee uh, industry um, uh, organizations are accountable to the shareholders. And what the shareholders expect is increasing growth in profits. 
And we know that in the telecommunications sector, all the increasing growth and in profits comes from wireless uh, packages and, and solutions that they sell. Similarly to the technology industry, all of the future growth and profits comes from us purchasing new devices. And of course, the new devices are driving wireless. Um, you've, you, I'm sure you've seen all the projections in terms of increasing uh, uh, revenue from a 5G, increasing employment, the number of jobs, improvements to our health. And, and all of those may be true. They may be exaggerated, but there's no doubt that there are benefits from 5G technology. I'll, I'll reiterate that a lot of majority of those benefits can come from wired. What I find fascinating, I'm not aware of any analysis that weighs the costs of this wireless 5G solution environment to the actual purported benefits. And these are things like increased healthcare costs. We do know that, and we've got proof now, proof positive, and, and renowned scientists writing, publishing peer-reviewed papers, incredible journals that would that predict and forecast that if the World Health Organization and its agency were to really truly evaluate the science, they would come out with a designation of category one, which is the same category as cigarette smoke and asbestos. So we do know the healthcare costs are increasing and will continue. The lost productivity, whether you're electrosensitive or just uh, have, a, uh, have a reaction to this increasing amount of exposure. Increasing energy costs. We know there's been reports now that show that a wireless solution can use up to 10 times the energy of a wired solution. And a 5G base station environment actually uses up to three times more energy than a 4G base station. So we know now, and, and I'll just give you one, one fun fact, between 2012 and 2015, the wireless industry cloud footprint, the carbon footprint from the wireless industry cloud increased the equivalent of adding 4.9 million cars to the road. Yet we don't hear anybody talking about that. We hear about the trillions of dollars of benefits and the thousands of jobs. We're not really balancing that. We know that wireless technology is significantly uh, more prone to attack, hacking attacks. So there are more prone to security breaches and our, our personal and business privacy is absolutely uh, going to be at greater risk because of this focus on, on, wire, on wireless technology and wireless solutions. Uh, the damage to the environment, 20% uh, of the only 20% of the e-waste uh, from cell phones is actually recycled. In the US now, the average life of a cell phone is less than three years. But what I found even more staggering is that that energy is actually less than the energy cost to actually, and the, and the damage to the environment is less than the cost to actually produce and mine some of these rare materials and rare minerals that are needed in these wireless devices. So the impact of actually the mining and creation and, and finding and manufacturing of these devices is actually worse and more significant than the actual pollution from throwing these uh, devices in, in garbage. And finally, there's been NASA and other reputable organizations around the world I've started to, to raise the risk and concern that our ability to forecast weather, uh, whether it's tornadoes or and prepare ourselves, could be impl uh, impacted by as much as 30%. I want to just spend a minute about one of the organizations around the world. Uh, we call it ICNRP, the International Commission on Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection. 
and it's and it's becoming more and more vocal in its in its use. In fact, most recently in January of this year, Health Canada came out with a pseudo update to the to our Canadian guidelines, and they actually referenced uh, ICNRP, which which I found very disturbing. I'm seeing ICNRP members. Uh, we saw them in Bermuda in this quote independent panel that was reviewing um, 5G and whether the the um, safety guidelines of Bermuda should have been uh, increased or or maintained. Uh, they had an inroads in Health Canada when they did their update. And I just want to highlight, I won't go through a lot of these details, but there are, there's a, uh, a lot of concerns about ICNR and its inability to act in, a, in what they pretend or purport to be an independent um, uh, organization because they, are, in fact, are not. It's a very private members club where members elect new members and there's no justification. There's major conflicts with many of the members because of their ties to the telecommunications industry and the US military. The core uh, belief scientific foundation of ICNR and Health Canada and the FCC in the US and many organizations that are supposed to be protecting us goes on this whole premise that you have to heat tissue to, to uh, cause harm, the whole thermal heating. And you know most people aren't aware that, that that theory was first published in the 1920s. So we're now relying on technology and a paper that was published a century ago even though the fact has been proven false in hundreds of peer-reviewed published papers that, in fact, you can damage tissue without heating it up. And finally, the, the ICNRP doesn't have the skills or the expertise to evaluate the science. I also want to talk just a little bit about the insurance industry. Uh, one of the ways to really test on products, so if you think about the role of insurance companies, is to really insure us against harm and to make sure that, that organizations and individuals are protected. Well, um, Swiss Ray and Lloyd's are two of the major reinsurance organizations. In other words, sometimes when companies want to take an insurance policy, they will actually sell that policy or uh, funnel it through these reinsurers. So really a big cornerstone and a foundation of the insurance industry are these reinsurers. And two of the more most well-known and most successful are Lloyd's and Swiss Ray. And so here, I won't read these, but you know, back even in 2010, the emerging risk team of Lloyd's wrote a, a white paper that compared the potential risks from damage claims from electromagnetic radiation to those posed by asbestos. Swiss Ray in 2013 came out with a preliminary uh, concern and then updated that in 2019, saying that, you know, the 2019 Swiss Ray report states, current concerns regarding potential negative health effects from electromagnetic fields are likely to increase talked about the exposure of hackers and their ability to exploit 5G and the speed and volume to steal more data faster, and major concerns about privacy and security breaches and espionage. So here you have organizations that have, have no other role in life other than to protect themselves and their organizations they insure, raising red flags about industry concerns about radio frequency radiation. I just put this slide up to remind us that our track record, not only in North America, but really around the world, is, is awful when it comes to protecting us. Most of these um, items listed, whether it's asbestos, cigarette smoke, BPA, thalidomide, lead, mercury, it, the correct action by government has taken place, some cases decades after the original science showing harm was peer reviewed and published. And that's where we are today. All the work that we're doing, C4ST and other organizations around the world are trying to shrink that so it won't take decades now that we have the peer-reviewed published science available to show harm, it won't take decades to actually protect us. I'll just talk for just two minutes very quickly 
Um, we were successful in Canada, had some successes. It was a private members bill by a federal member of parliament that required manufacturers to place health warnings labels on their packaging. And this same uh, member of parliament happened to be on the federal health committee uh, that dedicated three meetings, three sessions to bringing in experts from around the world and came back out with 15 specific recommendations to prove Health Canada's guidelines. Unfortunately, in both those cases, they were passed over to the non-elected members of Health Canada who basically just uh, eliminated and ignored all of those reports. So I would encourage you to continue. As CC said that you don't go this road alone. Um, what you want to do is, is to get a group of people. You have to get elected officials on board. They're, they tend to be the most receptive audiences because they are in fact elected and they have to listen to people in their constituents or their ridings or whatever the local environment is referred to. Just recently, we, we worked, the C4C worked with 23 other organizations on an appeal to the government of Canada, partly to uh, stop the rollout of 5G until we have the health effects properly evaluated, until we hold industry more accountable to, to, uh, to make sure their products are safe. And we do a proper analysis of the benefits of the technology against the true cost. So again, I, I thank you um, again for the opportunity and I look forward to uh, any questions that individuals may have on, um, on the topics. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. And we will hold questions until the end to make sure that all of our speakers are able to convey their information to you. But uh, by all means, go ahead and put questions in the comments and you can put them in English or in Portuguese and we'll translate accordingly and see how we can answer them at the end. So next, it's my privilege to introduce you all to Dr. Kent Chamberlain, who is professor and chair. I'm sorry. Okay, whoever that was, could you please mute? Um, professor uh, Kent Chamberlain is the Professor and Chair Emeritus of the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of New Hampshire here in the United States. And he also served on the Interoperability Laboratory Advisory Board, which is an international evaluator of wireless technologies. He was also active in Project 54, which addresses the communications needs of police and first responders. Most recently, Dr. Chamberlain served on the New Hampshire Commission that investigated the health and environmental impact of 5G and wireless radiation. And he's here to discuss that with us today. So welcome, Dr. Chamberlain. Thank you, Cece. And thank you to the organizers of this symposium. Now, at this point in the program, you're, I assume that you're aware of the risks associated with wireless radiation exposure. And you're also probably aware of the obstacles to protecting yourself against it. I mean, industry can make a lot of money, as you just heard from Frank Clegg, and it can make a lot of money with a rollout of more cell towers and 5G. And right now, they appear unwilling to let safety concerns get in their way. So given this, what can citizens do to change a system that's not working in their best interests? My presentation today is about how a state commission was formed to explore safety issues. This political action took place in the United States in the state of, of New Hampshire, and many of the lessons learned, though, should apply to other states and other political systems. So what you've heard from other speakers is that you need to get the attention of the legislators. So I'm going to take you through how that happened and give you a sense of the time involved and what was involved in the, the process for, for making something we hope happen. 
So I'm assuming you can see my slides now. So let's go. Yes. Through. All set, Kent. Fantastic. Thank you. So the origin of the commission to study 5G in New Hampshire it started back in 19, 2018. A single person, this is back in the winter, a person with uh, ES, uh, electro hypersensitivity uh, was, was having problems, was having trouble getting away from radiation. Her symptoms were getting bad, but she was overly she was quite concerned because you know, reading in the newspaper about the expansion of 5G and the addition of cell towers in her area. So she decided to reach out and she fortunately was able to connect with CC Doucette, our moderator. And the wonderful thing there is that she was able to get encouragement and was able to get set in a, in a good direction. And you heard from CC that CC has a lot of great connection and was able to point this resident in, in the right direction to make things change. So the resident started reaching out and in fact tried to have or did have a screening of Generation Zapped, invited a lot and a lot of people, but the only people that showed up are well, friends and family. This is a, something that for anybody who's done political organizing, you probably recognize this, or maybe you've been there. So not much happened with that particular, you know, got a little limited success, but she kept at it. Uh, I was concerned about the uh, electro hypersensitivity. And so she continued reaching out and she started talking to state legislators. Now her first contacts for the legislators were women women legislators. She thought she might have a better chance there being a woman herself. That turned out not to be the case, but she was persistent. Unfortunately, she was able to connect with uh, Pat Patrick Abrami. He's a state representative. And the neat thing about Senator Abrami, I mean, uh, Representative Abrami is his willingness to work on an issue that really isn't that sexy. I'm not sure that people have mentioned this before, but if you're talking about moving a technology that's going to bring jobs and you, it's going to bring money into the state, that's sexy and it gets the attention of legislators. But when you're talking about something that involves safety, you don't get as much of a response. However, to his credit, to Patrick Abrami's credit, he took an interest in this and started acting on it. And uh, he started, uh, even in fact, he met with Sisi and he met with other people who knew things about the you know, effects of radiation. And he came to the conclusion that this is something that he should pursue. Uh, also, it's worth mentioning that Patrick Abrami is a Republican. And the general finding that I've seen, having been involved in this a while, is that Democrats are more likely to be interested in safety than Republicans. So after Patrick Abrami, Representative Abrami's research showed that there was something there, he started teaming with other people and other senators in this case, Tom Sherman, who is a physician. And they both agreed that there was a problem, a problem that should be looked into. So they started writing legislation to form a commission. So here is the legislation to form the commission. And that, uh, oops, excuse me. So what they ended up doing was writing a five page bill and that bill is H bill. And I'm mentioning this in case you want to look it up. It's five pages and so it's not hard to read. So it's House Bill 522. It was submitted in 2019. 
So Google 2019, uh, New Hampshire House Bill 522, and you'll get the bill. And you'll get our final report also if you're interested. So they submitted that in June of 2019. And the legislation was passed by the legislature with bipartisan support, which to me was very encouraging. Uh, because as I mentioned, this, this, there are such schisms in this country right now, Republican, Democrats, so to see that bipartisan support was very encouraging. And it was ended up being signed by a Republican governor, Governor Chris Sununu, in July of 2019. So time-wise, the concern was first expressed or identified in winter of 2018, and then a year later, a little bit more than a year later, they have legislation to form commission. So it's called the, it's for the formation of that commission and what they're supposed to do over the marching orders as I'll go into greater detail with in a moment. Marching orders were to look more deeply into the effects of 5G and radiation exposure. At that point, the people writing the bill knew enough to understand that there is a connection. It, it's not just 5G that's of concern, but it's the uh, G, the generations that went before it. So 3G, 4G, 5G is just piggybacked on top of it, and 5G will simply add more radiation into the environment. So that's why it was written in that way. So here are our marching orders. They're not very in or complicated. Uh, first of all, I want, you, want to examine the environmental and health effects of radiofrequency radiation in general. Second, to assess the health and environmental impacts of 5G. So that's to separate the two. What are the effects of radiation in general, radio, radio frequency genera uh, radiation, and 5G technology? So separating the two. Not surprisingly, if you're going to make a report like that, investigating this issue, you're going to have to bring in scientific experts called for in the bill itself, and then answer some unresolved questions. And those questions are ones that you've heard before, namely, why does the insurance company recognize wireless radiation as a risk, but then not sure for damages against it? You just heard from Frank Clegg that Lloyd's of London, they won't insure it. And I think we all know the answer. They won't insure it because it's kind of an, it's an unknown risk. Some people have said that radiation is the new asbestos. Next is why have the thousands of peer-reviewed studies been ignored by the FCC? And why are the FCC guidelines solely on, based on thermal effects when non-thermal effects have been documented? And why did the World Health Organization show that wireless radiation is a group 2 group B carcinogen? And why is that also being ignored by the FCC? So here you're seeing something in common here. You're seeing the FCC, FCC, FCC. And as you'll see later on, we kind of figured out why the FCC showed up and we can answer some of these questions as a result of what we found. So the membership uh, for the commission was specified pretty clearly in the House bill. And of course, this is important. I think that the, the writers of the commission or the, the bill that created the commission recognized that this, our findings would probably come under fire. So you want to make darn sure that you have people on the commission that are up for the job. 
many of the uh, commissions that I've seen from industry on this issue, they haven't had people who had the necessary experience to, to make the judgment about whether or not radiation is harmful or not. But if you look through this list right here, you'll see that we did indeed have the right people to make that judgment. Uh, as you wouldn't, you're not surprised to see probably here, three members from the New Hampshire House of Representatives and two members from the Senate. We did, and two of those, or one senator was an MD and one of the representatives was an MD. A member from the public appointed by the governor. So you wanted to have an outside member. Interesting story there. This, uh, the, the outside member, Denise Ricciardi, and you'll hear about her in, in a moment, a little bit more about it, about her. Um, she was on the commission. She was a very active member of the commission. And when the commission was done, she said, well, there's more that needs to be done here. I'm going to run for Senate. She ran for Senate and won her seat. Uh, the state attorney general, obviously, you want to make sure that we're not violating any laws, state laws or federal laws. So you want to have representation there. Two members of the New Hampshire High Tech uh, Technology Council. Uh, we, were, we were a very, we aspire to be a technologically savvy state. And a lot of the jobs in our state are based on technology. So you want to make sure that what we're doing, what we're recommending, doesn't uh, jeopardize our achievements in the technology center uh, sector. Uh, members of the business or one member of the Business and Industries Association, and again, for the same reason, you want to make sure that we're not jeopardizing businesses in, in what are our recommendations. A uh, member from the New Hampshire Medical Society, a uh, member from the university with background in radio frequency uh, radiation, that's me. And so I was, when I uh, was brought onto the commission, I was the chair and a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of New Hampshire. So I had the, the background and so I was asked to serve by our chancellor. And a member of the phone slash wireless technology industry, we got an executive from CTIA, uh, and that's the uh, Cellular Telecommunication um, tele 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 Industries Association. So we had a woman who served uh, as an executive from that organization. Uh, the commission, uh, we had to have somebody from the Department of Health and Human Services, which just kind of makes sense since we're dealing with a health issue, and a public member with expertise in the biological effects of radiation. And that person was Paul Iro from McGill University. He's a professor of toxicology, and he's very familiar with problems associated with electromagnetic exposure. So we were lucky to get him. The interesting part is this is a New Hampshire commission, and he's from McGill University in Canada, and we were very lucky to have him. So in the final analysis, 13 people were seated, and, and now is maybe an important time to mention conflict of interest and biases that may exist. Because for some of the, the uh, commissions that are formed to look into issues like this, they're heavily biased one direction or the other. And in this right here, in the commission that was formed here, I got to say, it, it started off absolutely, well, to a great degree as possible, unbiased, except for the members re representing industry and the cellular, cellular telecommunications industry. And, and uh, one of the senators who, who was outspoken from the very start that this issue was probably one that we didn't or shouldn't be exploring, wasn't necessary to be, uh, to have be explored. 
my own bias, if anything, as a chair of a technology department was that eh, there's probably not a problem. We'll probably find out that it's the problem's blown up. We'll be able to you know, stamp it. The, you know, the problem solved, move forward with 5G, but that is not what we found. So point here is that we seated qualified people who are unbiased to make the decision and make the re recommendations that I'll be showing in just a moment. So timeline for our activities, as you know, starting, you know, concern started in 2018. The bill to form the commission was started in July 2019. And then in September of 2019, just you know, a few months after the bill was signed, we formed the commission. We had our first meeting. And so we met you know, 13 times from September to October, and that's the full commission. Everybody was there. It was interrupted by COVID, and so we were able to fortunately meet by Zoom at the same basic uh, time frame, within the same basic time frame as we would have had the pandemic not occurred. And most of the, the, at least the members of the commission I talked with felt that we had determined, we had learned all the information that we needed to learn to make our recommendations, and we didn't lose anything by the hiatus enforced by COVID. Uh, we did indeed hear from recognized experts. So a typical meeting would be we would come in and at some point we'd hear perhaps an hour-long presentation from an expert. We would then have an opportunity to uh, move you know, to question back and forth, a Q&A session with that expert. And then afterwards, we would have a session where we would talk amongst ourselves, you know, what did this really mean? How significant was it? And what do we, what are the, the takeaways? And then uh, in, uh, in July 2020, we formed a subgroup, a working group, to actually write or draft the final report. And I was on that, that working group. And so we met on a more regular basis and we drafted the final report and then had periodic meetings with the full group where we would do the editing. And I got to say that, you know, normally when you have uh, you write a report by a, a committee, it can be really a problem. But this seemed to work out pretty effectively. And people tended to be pretty much in agreement about what our observations were. And we were able to, to move forward with the final report, which is available to everybody. It's, it's out in the, I'm not sure where it's going to be or made available to you, but we can certainly include the link for this, this symposium. So you can actually look on our final report. So just talk a little bit about the experts that we brought in to our commission. And Paul Iro, I mentioned, gave a stellar presentation, uh, just talking about the concerns, about what we know about radiation. Uh, and then we went to Michael Wyde, who's from the uh, National Toxicology Program. And you've heard about that National Toxicology Program uh, that worked and identified cancers that would form, excuse me, <clears throat> as a result of exposure. Frank Legg, you heard talk just a moment ago, and we watched his video. We watched his video uh, and we got other materials from him. And uh, also Eric Swanson, he was the one person who was brought in by the telecommunications industry. And I'll say more about him later. He was the only person brought in who was paid to present. So this is something else very important to, to note, and that is all of the other speakers, all of the other experts that were brought in 
did it for free. But this one speaker, Eric Swanson, he was brought in by the telecommunications industry and he was paid. Uh, we had uh, Tim Shirley, who from Colorado State, uh, an expert in the field, Deborah Davis, somebody you're going to hear from next, and that's Theodorus Scarato. We brought her in, you know, tapped her brain, found out what her concerns were, uh, what, how, what, what was going on with the legislation, and then to David Carpenter and Herman Kelting. So we had a, a good number of experts, and if you're interested in identifying experts to bring in for your efforts to bring about legislation, please feel free to contact me. I'd be glad to share what I know, but anybody on this panel has equal information or, and perhaps more information to share than I do. So the sources of information, you know, where, how we drew our conclusions were clearly from the out, uh, outside experts. All of them were provided uh, clear evidence that wireless radiation posed a threat to human health and or the environment. And the presenter who did not acknowledge those risks, in fact, said there were no risks at all associated with exposure to RF fields, was the guy who was brought in by the telecommunications industry. And this is something that I've observed in the time that I've been involved with you know, radiation issues. And that is the only people I've heard say that it's not a problem are those who are paid with, by or you know, given money by the telecommunications industry. All the other ones, all the people who would be more independent because they're not being paid by industry are saying, no, there is a problem and you need to pay attention to this problem. We also looked heavily at peer-reviewed publications. As a matter of fact, as soon as I found out or was uh, appointed to this commission, I started reading. I found it very surprising because I found just paper after paper that documented problems associated with cell phone and radiation exposure. In fact, uh, one of the roles that I played, and I, I think perhaps an important role on the commission, was to help identify the quality of journals. Because if you talk to people or those people from the tele telecommunication industry who are saying there's not a problem, they say, oh, yes, those articles that point to problems, that identify problems with exposure, they're from fringe journals, low quality journals. So what I did, uh, and, and by the way, I should mention that I've been an associate editor for IEEE. Anybody in electrical engineering will represent IEEE, the Institute for Tele, uh, Tele, uh, Electrical and Electronics Engineers. That's, those are the uh, top level journals in our field. So I've been an associate editor and I understand how to identify the quality of journals. Uh, also as a department chair, you know, when a new faculty member would apply to our department, I had to check and make sure that the publications from this prospective faculty member were, were published in a, in a high quality journal. So this is something I was fairly experienced with, but still I wanted, I brought in a reference librarian from our college to help identify journals because the question I posed was, if you wanted to create a journal, could you do that? Could you create a faux journal, a false, false journal to publish things contrary, you know, saying that 5G was bad, whereas in fact, there was no proof. And the answer we came up with is no. The journals that we looked at, the journals from which we obtained our information to make our judgments about the harm or non-harm of cellular radiation, they were high quality journals. And you can do this by looking at such things as the uh, impact factor, and they're all published in, on the internet, acceptance rate, review board membership, 
editors, citations. So there are a lot of things you can do to identify the quality of a journal. And so the statement I make right now is the journals that we looked at, the journals from which we came, got, came up with our conclusions were top-notch journals. The people who wrote the, the publications were themselves you know, very qualified uh, scientists. So this thing about that the telecommunications industry says about fringe journals, that's it's just not true. So at this point, I mean, we found this out pretty soon, pretty early in our deliberations as a commission. And so we were going, what's going on? Why is the FCC not doing something about this? And the bottom line, and I do recommend that you look at this if you have any question whatsoever about why the FCC would make such statements like cell phone radiation is harmless. It comes from you can it comes from Harvard. So this is not my opinion I'm stating. This is from Harvard, and it answers the question about why we're not getting more of a response from the FCC. And so the title, as you can see here, is how the Federal Communications Commission is dominated by the industries it presumably regulates. And I really like this one statement, so I'll read it to you. And that is that industry controls the FCC through a soup-to-nut stranglehold that extends from its well-placed campaign spending in Congress through its control of the FCC's congressional oversight committees to its persistent agency lobbying. I mean, you couldn't be more clear than that. The agency that's supposed to protect us is run by the industry that, <laughs> that it's supposed to protect against. So I'm not going to say a lot more about that, except that that really influenced us as a commission, because it answered that question that I mentioned, you know, we had those questions that we were supposed to answer. This is why the FCC has ignored the rock solid scientific uh, information to date. Should also point out that not all of the 13 members signed the final report. So in New Hampshire, the way it works is if you have a commission and it's not unanimous, then the minority can write their own report. And so that happened, and you wouldn't be surprised, as I mentioned, the, the people who weren't supportive of the final report that acknowledged the risks associated with wireless radiation were from the telecommunications industry, from business, and a senator, a state senator, who was uh, very pro-business. So, uh, but 10 of us did sign that final report. If you want to see what the minor minority report says, and basically it says there, there's no problem, let's move forward. You can, it's buried within our final report that I mentioned earlier. So the conclusions reached by the commission, I don't think you're going to be surprised by this. Wireless radiation, including 5G, poses a th significant threat to human health and the environment. And then the relative risk is not clear and more research will be necessary to determine what that risk is. Now we fully acknowledge that there are probably benefits associated with 5G and moving to 5G, but we don't know what the risks are. Now an analogy that we used in the commission is driving. Well, we know that there are risks associated with driving. In that case, the risk is very well known. About 35,000 people per year die on the highways in the United States. So we know what the risks are, but we obviously chose the benefit, the benefit of driving. We're not driving around a horse and buggy right now. We're taking that risk, but that's a risk that we decide to take. 
And we can control that risk to some degree by the car we buy, whether or not we wear our seat belts, uh, how we drive, and we can control it. But our issue with 5G is that you really can't control it if a cell tower is put outside your home. It's imposed on you. So that was a very big concern. We said we need to know more about what the risk is, but also we want to provide an opportunity for people who don't want to be exposed at all to have that opportunity. So we didn't come to a conclusion on it, how to do it, how to make it so that people control that risk, but we had, that is a conclusion we reached as a commission. So not surprisingly, this isn't a scientific issue. We've seen this before, as Frank Clegg just mentioned. Um, we've been through this many, many times before with trans fat, asbestos, smoking, you name it. And so we're in the phase right now is where industry is categor categorically denying any problems associated with their product. And so we need to deal with it on a political level. So, and also the, the statement of conclusion is until we deal with this on the federal level, until the FCC radiation guidelines are changed, we're still going to work under the 1996 guidelines, section 704, that says you can't use health as a reason to deny citing. So right now we are very much stuck at the state level and the municipal level. You know, there's some things that people have talked about and probably will be talking about in subsequent talks, but right now, industry pretty much has a stranglehold on us. So general recommendations. So these are the recommendations that we're, we're trying to implement. We want to seek an independent evaluation of FCC radiation guidelines. And up to this point, all of the people looking at the guidelines have been put there by industry. And they're just saying, no, nope, these regulations are just fine. So how we're going to do that is we're, we're hoping with subsequent legislation to put pressure on or to ask our federal delegation, our federal senators and representatives to put pressure on the FCC to make actions happen so that the FCC can change its guidelines. And we'll hear more about some of that later. We also want to take action to alert the public. And this was mentioned earlier. CC talked about this. Let people know there are risks. People don't know. Uh, the, the, the cell phone radiation can hurt them at all. They think it's totally innocuous. But once they know, we're hopeful that they'll adopt more, say, better hygiene, better electromagnetic hygiene to protect themselves. We want to encourage migration to wired networking where possible. You know, a lot of the infrastructure for wired networking is already in place. And there probably will is money. I'm told that there is money available for some for you know, institutions like schools to revert back to wired networks. And of course, that solves a lot of problems. So that is one of the issues that we recommended. And we also want to per perform radiation level measurements at cell towers. Now, Magda, Dr. Magna Havis talked about this on Tuesday. This may sound like something well, you know, that is surprising to you. It was very surprising to me that they don't already have a required measurement, signal strength measurement for cell towers. A lot of work that I've done in my career was for the Federal Aviation Administration. And you couldn't put in anything without certifying it, without collecting measurements to make sure that it was performing as specified. And if you made any change to a facility, you had to make measurements again. That was something that was simply done. 
But right now, to the best of my understanding, there is no requirement for any measurements on a cell tower, even when you first install it. But I know from my work in electromagnetics that you could easily put up a tower and have greater radiation in one direction than you'd expect. I could go into the details, but that can happen. And there have been groups that have gone around and performed measurements and found that the radiation levels were far higher than are specified in these very high already, higher than the FCC thresholds, radiation thresholds. So uh, another thing was to allow the public to perform their own measurements. I've got my meter right here. And to make the uh, meters available in libraries, as Cece talked about also. Because once people become aware of the radiation uh, problem and they start performing their own measurements so they can see what that radiation looks like, they're more likely to do something about it. Something else I want to mention briefly here, and that is we considered making it a requirement that whenever you sold a house, that you'd have to have it inspected for RF levels in addition to arsenic levels and all the other things that are checked out when you sell a house. We kind of moved away from that because of pressure from the real estate industry, but something that we might want to consider for the future, making it a requirement. Um, we want to work to protect trees, birds, and pollinators. Uh, it's surprising there are, is a good bit of work, and perhaps this has been talked about already in the symposium, but Trees don't do well when exposed to radiation. When you look at trees near cell towers, they're degraded. And the same is true for birds and for pollinators. So one approach is that even though that section 704 I mentioned earlier says you can't use health as an excuse to deny a, a site, a site, tower siting, it's possible that you could use the environment. So that's something, a door that we tried to open in our general recommendations. So finally, our next steps is that to look at legislation. So remember, we, we had legislation to form the commission itself. The commission did it work. It came out with its final report. And that was last November. And now we want to act on the recommendations. So the recommendations are to, you just saw on the last slide, but we want to come up with legislation that now implements some of those recommendations. So that's being done right now. And it's a lot of back and forth going on, as you can imagine. It's not just something that everybody says, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Let's go for it. Because we have a lot of pressure from industry to make things go smoothly. And they don't want to see something stand in their way of moving forward quickly. So the authors of that legislation are Representative Pat Abrami, who I mentioned before, Republican, and Senator Denise Ricciardi, I mentioned her, she was the public member of the commission, who now won her seat, and uh, she's also a Republican. So we have two Republicans pushing forward legislation saying, yeah, let's be careful, let's look at the potential risks and do something about it with regards to cell phone radiation. And in terms of the timeline, well, voting on that legislation, it's not expected till the well, late next year. So again, looking at that timeline, concern was first expressed back in the winter of 2018. And here it's more than four years later when something potentially could be done about that. But I am cautioned by the people involved, and that is an uphill battle on this legislation is likely. So you can form a commission. Okay, look at it. That's great. But then is we have legislation that potentially could put roadblocks or slow up the rollout of 5G, well, 
that may be a totally different issue. So that concludes my presentation, and I look forward to questions that may arise later on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Chamberlain. Um, yeah, we are so hopeful that other states and other countries will be able to emulate what you've done there. And we saw that the European Parliament was making reference to your work on the commission as well. So thank you so much. When you guys published that, I sent it over to my local printer and I had it printed up and it looks really fat, two-sided. But the beauty of the way that it's set up is that the summary and recommendations for the minority report are in the first 17 pages. The rest is full of that, uh, I'm sorry, the majority report. The rest is full of that minority report and then the appendices have all the minutes to these meetings because the transparency that you guys insisted upon was impeccable. So a really well done effort. And <clears throat> we all thank you and your colleagues for the work done there. So next, I am so thrilled to introduce you to Theodora Scarato. By training, Theodora is a clinical psychotherapist for children and adolescents, so she cares. She cares deeply about what is happening to our children. She is also the executive director of Environmental Health Trust, which is has been mentioned many times today. It's a scientific think tank that publishes research and educates policymakers on environmental issues. She has co-authored several articles on electromagnetic field policy and through EHT, she maintains the most comprehensive database on EMF international actions. And Theodora also spearheaded the efforts that led the state of Maryland to become the first state here in the US to recommend reducing wireless radiation in schools. She's also working really hard on the historic lawsuit that she and the Environmental Health Trust and Dr. Deborah Davis and the Children's Health Defense have filed against the US Federal Communications Commission for ignoring the EMF science. So Theodora, welcome. Thank you so much, Cece. And I'm just honored to be here today to speak with everyone about this issue. Let me get my slides up. Okay, great. So um, I need to figure out how to just move them to, there we go. Okay, great. So our website is ehtrust.org. Please go to our website. We have a lot of resources. I wanted to share some of what we do, some international policy efforts around the world, and also recommend that in the first conference in Brazil of electromagnetic radiation, Dr. Deborah Davis, our president, uh, gave a talk, and that's available all online. And it is a great uh, uh, circle around uh, the science on wireless and 5G radiation. We also have resources online. Our scientists publish research. We also educate policymakers and track the policy, um, as Cece stated. And you can go to our website to get compendiums of the research. Now, there are many governments that recommend we reduce cell phone and wireless radiation, especially to children. So I have some of these on the screen here. However, for, in some of these countries, people aren't even aware that their health ministry has this information or that the recommendations have been made. In other countries, there is more transparency in public education campaigns. And I want to briefly talk about that. In France, where they have several laws starting in 2010 related to cell phones. Uh, they measure and publish the radiation from cell towers. 
And more recently, the French ministers passed an order in 2019 with the following statements related to labeling on cell phones when you buy them. Keep radio equipment away from the belly of pregnant women. Keep radio equipment away from the lower abdomen of adolescents. And yet in the United States and many countries, of course, this is an image actually from a Baltimore public school where kids are holding wireless devices on their laps in schools for hours a day. In Belgium, cell phones designed for young children are banned from sale. Uh, and as well, France and French Polynesia have similar laws. There's also an advertising on cell phones. Uh, so you can't advertise on the television uh, to this age group as well. And those are, those are images of the phones, which they have a list of the different phones which you're not allowed to sell. This is a bus in Cyprus, part of a large scale children's health campaign to reduce exposure to children. This is the translation on one side, don't irradiate me, learn how to protect me. And you can see it on the bus here uh, in Greek. In Cyprus, the Archbishop Makarios Hospital uh, has removed wireless from the pediatric and neonatal units. And you can learn more at the Children's Environmental and Protection uh, Committee of Cyprus. In French Polynesia, I look like I'm missing one of these images, but there is a public health campaign to, to educate the uh, people on how to reduce exposure both to wireless radiation as well as magnetic field, electromagnetic fields. Oh, this is um, also another image they have. Because, because it's invisible and we can't see it, uh, we often don't know that it exists and they're making the, the invisible visible. Environmental Health Trust, uh, we've been working on this issue for over a decade. I got involved about um, a decade ago, but Environmental Health Trust has been tracking not only the science and publishing science, but also raising awareness of the policy. So we have a section on our website about 5G. What are different countries doing around the world? And we were honored to present it to the Italian marathon on 5G. There are over 600 Italian cities where their mayors and elected officials have passed resolutions to halt 5G. In France, too, there's dozens of uh, elected officials who signed on to appeals. And around the world, uh, many in many different countries, there are different actions. This is a handout that we have available online that we're always updating related to policy on 5G and cell towers. This is one of many handouts we have on how to reduce wireless from cell phones or in your home. We would love to have translations to all of these. So um, anything that we have online, uh, please let us know if you have it translated, we will make it available also. We have a page with Spanish translations, Italian and French. As Cece mentioned, the Maryland State Children's Environmental Health and Protection Advisory Council was the first body of the state, of a US state, to make recommendations recommending limiting wireless exposures in schools. Because in the United States, we have wireless radiation as a ever increasing environmental exposure in the classroom to our youngest and most vulnerable children. I worked for many years directing an 
intensive therapy program in schools. And um, when I learned about the impact of the brain and the brain damage that had been found in research studies, that is what got me motivated to work on this issue. They also have a recommendation to, when you build new, new buildings, new school buildings, put in those network cables so that you can ethernet connect and it do, you don't have to go back and, and you open the walls and, and put in those cables. We have, this is part of a handout we have that has the actions by teacher and education organizations in North America. The New Jersey Education Association has recommendations on schools on how to hardwire, how to put devices in airplane mode. The United Educators of San Francisco passed a resolution on safer technology, asking that the California cell phone advisory that uh, CC mentioned, that it should be disseminated to students and staff. And you can download these resources and print them out. Now, despite all that, we still have these outdated FCC limits with uh, exposure limits for, for humans, for wireless cell phones and cell towers, which have been unchanged since 1996. Our United States uh, Environmental Protection Agency was defunded fully in 1996 from developing proper uh, safety limits to set what level is safe. And instead the United States adopted industry uh, limits that industry field groups had created. As is discussed uh, in this wonderful conference for the last few days, the uh, limits are based on heating, not biological effects. They're not based on research on children's unique vulnerability. They don't consider impacts during pregnancy or the use of multiple devices at one time right next to our body. And they're not for uh, trees, bees, birds, or wildlife. So in, 19, um, in 2019, the FCC made a decision to keep their 1996 limits. They stated that the limits didn't need to be changed, even though on the record were numerous uh, thousands of pages of scientific studies and statements and testimonies uh, recommending a change so that they were biologically based. So at that time, we filed, there are 14 petitioners in our case, the historic lawsuit, Environmental Health Trust uh, at Al versus the FCC, along with Consumers for Safe Cell Phones, Children's Health Defense, and numerous other petitioners, uh, that the FCC violated several United States laws, the Administrative Procedures Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Our case also is focused on the need for children to have protections and that people with electromagnetic illness are not being accommodated and are continuing to be harmed, as is the population. And one of the things that we point out, which I know has been uh, covered um, by, um, by Kent earlier, is that we don't have safety limits and have never had a systematic review of the harm by any U.S. agency for birds, bees, or trees. So we're rolling out all of this new technology. With 5G comes these uh, millions of new wireless antennas in our neighborhoods close to where we live, work, and play. And yet 
in addition to people who are going to have these antennas outside bedroom windows, the birds and the pollinators are going to be closer than, than humans are, and yet our limits were not set to protect them. So I wanted to point out this really important paper, which was just published in the Reviews on Environmental Health. It's called The Effects of Non-Ionizing Electromagnetic Fields on Flora and Fauna, Part 1, Rising Ambient Electromagnetic Levels in the Environment. And it's by top experts in this field in the United States, Blake Levitt, uh, Dr. Henry Lai, and Albert Manville, who is a retired biologist of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, and they document the exponential increases in electromagnetic fields in nearly all environments and uh, present, and this is the first of a three-part series, the research showing broad wildlife effects uh, on orientation, migration, food finding, reproduction, mating, nest and den building, and survivorship, genotoxic effects, and the importance of recognizing ambient electromagnetic fields, those environmental levels that surround us from all of the wireless networks and cell tower systems in place and to recognize them as a novel form of pollution and to develop rules at regulatory agencies so that they can be regulated like other pollutions. And here I have this image, uh, you know, birds and they, they perch on antennas and they are unprotected. In addition, um, our, our lawsuit focuses on the impacts to a child's developing brain. This is research uh, by, uh, Brazilian experts who presented at your conference, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Alvaro uh, and Augusto de Salas uh, and other uh, engineers in Brazil that looked at the increased exposure to children. Uh, and we also put on the FCC record research on the, the neurological impacts, the impacts to the brain that have been found both in animal experimental studies as well as studies that looked at impacts to behavior with prenatal exposure to, to women who are pregnant. Now in the United States, uh, there are several US expert scientists uh, in very prominent positions, now retired, who are speaking out on this issue and uh, speaking to the public. So Dr. Linda Birnbaum, who's recently retired as the director of the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences at NIH and uh, former director of the National Toxicology Program, has a statement which was in an amicus brief for our case. There are several amicus briefs. Please go online to ehtrust.org to, to read all of them. They are each critically important and lend important information to our case. What Dr. Birnbaum talked about was the National Toxicology Program findings, those findings of clear evidence of cancer in a $30 million study. And she states that they demonstrate the potential for radiofrequency radiation to cause cancer in humans and explains that the criticisms levied against them um, are not backed by the data. And she points to Dr. Ronald Melnick's uh, published paper uh, responding to the criticisms by IGNOR. Dr. Chris Portier, who's now retired director of the United States National Center for Environmental Health at the CDC, 
and the uh, former director of the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, also has been uh, putting forward reports and letters on this issue. There is a case moving forward in the United States where over a dozen people are alleging that their cell, that their uh, brain tumors were caused by their heavy cell phone use. It's been winding through the case for years. And uh, in that case, uh, Dr. Portier put forward a report reviewing the research on radiofrequency radiation. And a quote from the report which states, given human, animal, and experimental evidence, I assert that to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, the probability that radiofrequency radiation exposure causes gliomas and aromas is high. He and Dr. Birnbaum, uh, both of them actually also signed on to a letter by several experts internationally calling on the Italian government not to loosen their more strict radiation limits. Now, uh, we have uh, environmental health trust scientists, as well as scientists from around the world, have written a letter to President Biden on 5G with recommendations for a sustainable wired, not wireless infrastructure to be uh, prioritized, a halt to 5G and 4G densification, an assessment of the energy consumption and climate impact of, of 5G and the, and the associated densification of the infrastructure, an assessment of the environmental impact of the 5G network in the United States and a genuine review of the research to develop science-based safety limits for human and wildlife uh, electromagnetic field exposures and the appointment of FCC commissioners who are absent of ties to the wireless industry, a multimedia national public awareness education campaign and a policy to reduce wireless exposures to our workers uh, in retail, in the electrical, our, our occupational health agency needs to address this issue, and as well in schools. Previously, there was a letter to President Trump that was signed by um, hundreds of medical professionals, and you can find that online. It details the science and a roadmap, we believe, for our country and for many countries when it comes to addressing this issue please go to Environmental Health Trust where we have lists of science on uh, 5G, small cells. Uh, we have pages on cell tower radiation and we have uh, printable cards and colorful resources you can share with your friends and neighbors. You can contact us for a presentation. Please be sure to sign up for our newsletter at ehtrust.org and uh, I'm glad to answer any questions after this, this excellent panel about the work that we're doing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Theodora. And I was able to, um, with our partners here, put some of the links in the chat. So if folks want to look there, they can grab some of those resources. So thank you again for everything you and Environmental Health Trust are doing. And now it's my privilege to introduce you to Patty Wood. She is the Executive Director of Grassroots Environmental Education, which is a not-for-profit charity based out of New York here in the United States. And she and her husband, Doug, and their dedicated team have been using education as their primary source for 21 years to bring out significant positive and lasting changes for protecting our children from environmental harms. Her efforts to protect our children have been formally recognized Yes. by the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Okay, I know. And 
Patty and Doug's programs are based on science and they are currently moving the needle towards safe technology with their Americans for Responsible Technology, their Baby Safe and their Tech Safe Schools project. So Patty, thank you and welcome. Go ahead. Thanks so much. I really appreciate um, whoever was putting this together, this opportunity. It's a, it's a wonderful um, chance to share ideas and hopefully inspire some new initiatives on this global program, on this problem, I should say. Um, so I'm a little, I'm trying to figure out how to do my screen here. And I think we did okay previously, but now I'm clicking share screen and it's not working. Okay, can you see it? Hello, Patty. Great. That's do you have it yet? No, we had it. Now we have it. Perfect. Okay. Terrific. <laughs> Little tricky. Okay, so um, I wanted to just introduce you to Grassroots. Um, I thank you so much, um, Cece, for that introduction. Um, part of our mission at Grassroots is to empower individuals to act as catalysts for change in their own communities. and. We utilize very similar strategies for all of our programs, but of course this growing exposure to higher and higher levels of RF radiation requires not only grassroots initiatives, but also um, we have to involve um, these, uh, you know, these individuals to, to work at the state and federal level as well. So we have been engaged in wireless issues since 2011. Um, several years ago, it became apparent that many grassroots efforts around the country created to push back against 5G might benefit from coming together in one place. So we created Americans for Responsible Technology. Um, and this is, our, this is our website, our homepage, a national coalition of grassroots organizations with a mission to stop the unconstrained proliferation of 5G small cell antennas and promote equitable access to technologies that benefit society and protect health, safety, security, privacy, and property of all Americans. Um, so we had an opportunity here um, to gather groups that were already um, in, uh, you know, in the in the thick of it, so to speak, and so we have um, we have groups from 48 states participating in this effort. Um, they can join forces on national legislation, rulemaking um, by the FCC, state laws that are driven by the telecom corporations, which is what we're doing in California right now, fighting against two very, very harmful bills. Um, they do you know, pretty much the same thing, just taking away local control um, and giving the telecoms free access to, uh, to anything they want. Um, but it is also an opportunity to network, to find people to testify at local hearings and to share success stories and so on. Um, they're on the site also for Americans Responsible Technology or ART as we call it. Um, there's an activist toolkit where we have put together um, a lot of resources uh, with materials that, uh, that people can take to their local municipalities, such as telecom code language. Um, this has been a very big deal is the codes. Um, and a lot of uh, small communities have been able to change their codes before the telecoms have actually come in and made their applications and thereby either push them back or at least um, started a conversation uh, within the community. Um, and also uh, town resolutions, fact sheets, sample letters to the editor, uh, information on real estate devaluation, 
um, which seems to be a very hot topic uh, right now, and, and many more things as you can see. Um, at the heart of everything we do is to provide peer review science on the health impacts, and in this case, also the environmental impacts, as well as key reports from around the world. Um, we have a large database to engage the groups in writing to the FCC, uh, the FDA and legislators, and we can target specific groups such as health professionals, um, which uh, uh, Theodora had just mentioned, who weigh in um, when necessary. We can get you know 500 um, medical professionals to write a letter when, um, when that is necessary. Um, okay, so uh, this is one of our, our first um, projects that we created uh, in 2013 after a brainstorming session with EHT's founder, Dr. Deborah Davis, and we created the, Dev the, uh, the, the BabySafe project. Um, this is also a very valuable website um, for information and contains the latest peer-reviewed science on fetal exposures um, to RF radiation. But a key component is a brochure um, that we try to make available to pregnant women through their doctors, their midwives, or prenatal consultants. Um, and that educates them about using wireless devices safely around their developing baby. For instance, not putting your cell phone in your pocket, um, not carrying it in your bag and then holding your bag against your belly. Um, and not sleeping, you know, near yourself, your cell phone. This is, you know, pretty common things that, that we talk about all the time, but um, when someone is pregnant, we wanna make sure that they know about it and that they are getting it from a source that they trust. Um, Dr. Hugh Taylor, who's the head of OBGYN and reproductive sciences at Yale Medical School, actually inspired this work. And the brochure that, um, that we have created is now translated into six languages. And there are three more being translated right now. Um, information about RF radiation exposure and male reproductive health is also on this site. We had a, um, quite, a, a bit, uh, quite a conversation about where and how um, we could get this information um, to men of reproductive age uh, and to talk to them about not putting cell phones in their pockets. Uh, and we decided that uh, the best uh, messenger uh, for this information was probably their girlfriend or their pregnant wife. So that is also on the site. Um, another important element of this site is, uh, is the joint statement, which we wrote early on. And this has been signed by almost 500 health professionals from around the world. And we have in the past and will continue to use this asset in our conversations with lawmakers. Um, a, a recent project of ours is the Tech Safe Schools. Uh, we also rolled this program out uh, during COVID, so it has had a slow start. Um, the schools uh, are very interested right now in, uh, in distance learning and in making sure that every kid has got a, a wireless device so that they can do their homework at home. Uh, and, you know, lots of, lots of distraction uh, right now, and understandably so. Um, but it is not the first or the only program devoted to reducing the amount of radiation from wireless technologies in schools, but it actually has some unique components. Um, we have emerging science, as always, that is a cornerstone, um, but then there's legal liability and mitigation techniques uh, within the program. So here's just a, an, an example of the science page here. Uh, we have uh, a, an opportunity to update this site whenever uh, it, it is necessary uh, and we feel that we should. 
Um, and you can see what people can get on the site. You can just click on any of these links and go directly to these studies. It's very difficult to find studies of uh, exposure um, at schools. Uh, and so we have a few, but mostly the studies in here are about, um, about children and why they're so uniquely vulnerable to this type of radiation. Um, the interesting thing that I think most interesting thing about this is uh, the legal component of the program, which is intended to inform school administrators about foreseeable harms and to encourage them to pivot under a fiduciary um, duty of heightened vigilance and care to prevent um, that harm. So there are strong federal and state policies mandating safe learning environments in schools. Children are recognized as requiring and deserving special protection and special laws have already been enacted to safeguard children who are disabled or have special needs. School administrators have fiduciary responsibilities to children, parents and teachers, and at the very least not to expose them knowingly to harmful radiation. And the guiding legal principle under the fiduciary duty is for administrators to secure the informed consent of teachers, parents, and yes, when possible, children themselves. But in the great majority of situations, this is not happening. Um, school administrators also have an obligation to ensure that telecom products contain warnings and are certified to be safe. And in the case of harms, that adequate insurance is available. But as you've heard earlier, um, but with RF radiation um, harms, the telecoms have not been able to obtain insurance because no insurance company will cover them. Um, it is considered actually simply too dangerous for, um, for insuring them against uh, liability. So then the law also requires fair compensation for, for injuries, but in the case of RF radiation, children, parents, and teachers are being asked by the telecom companies to bear the costs of harm as a, sub as a subsidy to the telecoms management and shareholders. So there's an eight page letter that is written by a team of highly credible and renowned lawyers um, addressed to school attorneys, which outlines the legal responsibilities and liability of the school or school district. Um, when COVID has been resolved, uh, we will be going into schools um, that have been targeted by uh, members of our other program, the Americans for Responsible Technology, so that we have a local advocate um, in the community um, who will move this uh, this legal information into the school as well as the uh, as, as well as the regular, I mean the the other components of the Tech Safe School. Um, the other issue that we have that we think is um, really important uh, is the mitigation issue. And as you've heard from several other scientists have discovered how the human body is impacted by exposure to RF radiation, but also how developing bodies of children are particularly vulnerable. And uh, also you heard about the recent study by the NTP um, of the National uh, Institutes of Health, where they found clear evidence of cancer from exposure to this type of radiation, even at levels below government standards. And that was confirming the findings of thousands of other independent peer-reviewed studies. So this is a very difficult predicament for schools that have invested heavily in wireless technology and who have been repeatedly assured by the purveyors of wireless systems that their equipment meets or exceeds all government safety guidelines. They probably do. But a reliance on government safety guidelines from the 1990s is not sufficient to protect the children of today. It's a very different environment than a single device being tested in a single lab, but that's how we test wireless equipment. 
The Tech Safe School medication protocols include measuring radiation levels with reliable meters, and we actually give the brands and talk about the um, the pros and cons of different types of, of uh, equipment um, and reducing exposure time with simple things like turn off switches and maximizing distance to the router. So it is as far away as possible from students and staff. Um, simple software adjustments for power output to set routers at the lowest possible setting um, while still supporting online learning and reducing exposure through beacon signal adjustment. Uh, and those are all discussed in, uh, in detail. Um, and finally, the many different options for completely hardwired systems are discussed. And of course, this is what we're really promoting is a completely hardwired um, school environment. Um, a building biologist is on the TechSafe Schools team and is available to answer questions from IT personnel at schools. And then just to end here, um, this is a, a little bit similar to what you heard from Kent. Um, from New, Ham New Hampshire, but um, the New York State um, Legislature um, has now introduced uh, two bills to establish a temporary commission to study the human health and environmental impacts of 5G, as well as previous generations of wireless communications. Um, and this was introduced this spring. Um, we have same as bills in both the Senate and the Assembly, which make it easier to move them out of committee and onto the floor for a vote. Um, and we have carefully crafted these bills, um, seeing what has happened in New Hampshire and also the experience that they had in Oregon when they were looking at um, looking at studies to uh, to determine whether or not um, this type of radiation um, could be used safely in schools. Um, but in Oregon, um, when only epidemiological studies were considered and they were subsequently thrown out, we will look specifically at human, animal, and cell studies, and there will be public hearings, and there will be a commission, and that commission uh, we think is fair and balanced. So it did not move out of uh, this out of the committees for this year's session, which ended earlier this month. Um, but we have twelve co-sponsors already in the assembly and three in the Senate, including one of the most influential senators who previously had been very difficult to engage on this issue. He's the chair of the Energy and Telecommunic Telecommunications um, Committee in the Senate. Um, so this bill we will be brought to a vote early on in the January 22, 2022 um, session as we work throughout this year to add more co-sponsors and have meetings in those district offices uh, with key legislators where we can have a little bit more time to discuss this issue in detail. So I know that we're really tight on time. I don't know whether there will be time for Q&A, but I'm gonna end it right there. Thank you so much. Patty, thank you so much for everything you and your team at Grassroots are doing. We are so very grateful. And when I fell down the rabbit hole with this issue, probably around the same time as Theodora, we didn't have any of these resources available. So to sit here today and know that we've got a medical conference that can train our healthcare providers, that we've got toolkits to get out into our communities so we don't have to reinvent the wheel, to know that we have resources to bring our schools quickly up to speed. We are all so well poised to get out there and make this happen. So I hope that folks are very inspired by what you've heard today. And now we would like to field some questions that have come in through the comments section. Um, one of them is, 
How do we raise awareness in schools and hospitals? And I think we've probably answered that sufficiently through Theodora's talk. You can go out to the Environmental Health Trust and see how they've done that in the hospitals in Cyprus. You can go out to Patty Wood's website at TechSafe Schools and you'll have a toolkit there. Uh, there is a question asking, is the FDA also a captured agency? And what are the differences between the FCC and the FDA concerning EMFs? Would one of you like to take that? Perhaps Theodora, I see your lips twitching. <laughs> yeah, can you, uh, you can hear me? Yes. Okay, what I'd like to say is that the FDA uh, put out a report purporting to show safety for wireless, which actually they wrote a one page document, which um, was part of the record for the FCC and many expert scientists around the world wrote the FDA asking very pointed questions about their conclusion, which seems to show safety, even though safety wasn't assured. So there are some serious questions about the US FDA. We are writing them again. And now that there is a new administration, every administration, although this is really a bipartisan challenge, we write a letter and asking them those very pointed questions. I'll also point out that the New York's, um, the New Hampshire Commission on 5G has a response uh, and questions that went to the FDA as well, which were not adequately answered, which is uh, on uh, you know, posted in the report, but we continue to address a few things that you should know with the FDA. First, they did not even look at impacts to the brain or impacts to reproduction. There has been no review by any U.S. agency to fully review the science. Okay, thank you very much. Um, yeah, if we can share a backstory on that, there the gentleman who made the recommendation to the FCC saying that there's no problem here with our radiation limits. Dr. Jeffrey Shuren, it turns out, is married to a woman who's a partner in a law firm that represents the wireless industry. So there are serious conflicts of interest. Right. Or there have been, maybe we will get new people in the new administration, but this corruption goes far and wide at our federal agency levels. Another question that has been uh, asked is what percent of schools in the United States and Canada are hardwired? And can you share an example where that may have been done and how did they do it? Um, Frank, do you have a thought on percentage of schools in Canada? Oh, I'm sorry, I think you're muted still. How do I? That sounds good, we can hear you now. Okay, great. Uh, I didn't do anything, so I guess it must have been the uh, technology gods took care of me. But anyways, I'm, I'm not aware of any schools in Canada that have gone 100% wired. We were successful, and on, on, on Patty's uh, Tech Safe Schools website, there is a quote from a school in uh, our community here in Oakville, Ontario, where they actually were able to reduce the wireless tech, uh, radiation significantly, but still maintain 100% um, coverage for the students. So... So we, we've been successful in some schools in reducing the technology and reducing the exposure, but we haven't been successful in any that I'm aware of where we've gone completely uh, wired. And when we took that strategy in the school, because we knew that the school, the, the philosophy in the school is it's a, it's a private boys school and they, they want the part of their, their mandate or their strategy was to have a lot of mobile mobility where the students could work in different pods 
and have the ability to just change pods, like even during classroom sessions. And so we knew if we went in with a wired strategy, it, it would actually be not acceptable. So we were able to, to work with um, uh, the head of school and the technology director. And they, they uh, by just doing some of the, the modifications that actually Patty outlined, reduced the radiation by 90% to the students and the teachers and still give them 100% access to the internet. And I, I know, Patty, there's there's more ideas. In fact, I, I had the pleasure of, of, of being on a call between the IT director from the uh, Lindbrook School and the the expert that you have as part of your team and he gave him some more ideas uh to actually reduce the radiation further so a long-winded answer and you have to be very careful if you go into a school with a wired only strategy it may not be a winning strategy but you certainly can reduce the radiation significantly and still give the students and teachers access great thank you very much um, yeah and it, to emphasize a transition would be super because otherwise they're going to look at you like deer in the headlights. Yeah. Could I add that there are some schools in uh, the United States that have taken out the wireless and put in wired. Um, mm -hmm. Not many, and some of them are one step forward, three steps back, but there are movements, and I put a link in the chat to some of those schools, especially the kindergartens and the nursery schools. Yeah, I have a personal story to share. I was brought up to Maine to give a talk and we stopped in at a small school. It was like a house that had been converted to a private little school and they had, I think, 26 students in there. And we went in and we, you know, we used our radio frequency detection meter to identify where all the sources were. And I was just there for probably less than an hour and you know, getting to know these folks. And by the time we left an hour later, that school was completely fine. Everything was hardwired already. Their computers were already hardwired. Their printers were hardwired with an ethernet cable connected to the computers. All they had to do was to go into each device and turn off the wireless antennas. So it was great. So it can be that simple. Um, or it may mean that you need to really get into the walls and, and put things in. But let's, you know, approach it that we're going to work with our schools. I know of another school here in Massachusetts. I think it's a Waldorf school called Hartsbrook, where a family worked with the school and brought in the education components. And we helped them to understand what the risks are. And I was brought in to go in and help educate the kids so they could get on board with this. And they said, you know, it really wasn't all that hard to hardwire this small high school. And so what they did is they set up a um, like a little mailbox caddy. And every morning when the students came to school, they put their cell phones in airplane mode. And then they put their cell phone in their own little independent caddy that was right there at the door to the school. And then they just used the hardwired technology throughout the day at school. So there are some success stories out there. They're far and few between. Um, I do not yet know of a public school that has actually taken the advice to hardwire, but these conversations are happening. And that's how it starts is where parents and grandparents and teachers and administrators come together and look at the facts. And then they say, you know, I tell people go scream into a pillow for 10 minutes and then come back and say, okay, this is overwhelming, but what can we do? And start focusing on baby steps. What can you do? Start with education. Get the kids' parents informed so that they know to create a sleep sanctuary at home 
so the body can properly cell repair and regenerate and grow that DNA without being damaged in a radio frequency environment. So take the steps that we can to fix what we can and then work on the larger system changes that need to play, take place. Okay. Um, any other questions that are coming through? Feel free to put them in the comment section. Okay. Well, we are so grateful that we could join you today. We have loved every minute of this two-hour forum and the opportunity to share our experiences with you. We hope we've inspired you to find the courage to go into your communities and use the resources that we have. So thank you very much from everybody here in the U.S. and Canada to our friends in Brazil. It's been an honor to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.